uh, welcome to you watching at home uh, in live stream land or over in the overflow. Next time, get here early, hey? That's <laughs> uh, cruel, isn't it? Um, if you've been following the news at all, you would know that the American musical called Hamilton has just opened in Sydney. Uh, and being the story about America's forgotten father, Alexander Hamilton, it's an essentially American story. But its opening represents a new start to Australian theatre as it emerges from the long COVID hiatus. So there's lots of excitement about Hamilton. And really, that's kind of the thing about theatre. It's very exciting. It's what the word means. And it doesn't have to be in a theatre in order for it to be theatre, does it? You can have sporting theatre. You know, we're in the fifth set of a Grand Slam final between Federer and Nadal. That's theatre. Or uh, maybe there's 12 runs to get off the last over. That's theatre. When I went to see you 2 in 2019, I realised there are important elements to develop the theatre, the energy, the excitement. You've got to get there at least four hours early to get a good spot, along with the other devotees, you know, the real fans. And then there has to be a thunderstorm while you're standing there in the open. You've got to get cranky at the guy who pushes in in front of you with only 30 minutes to go, passively, aggressively bumping into him until he gets the message. The drunk guy is getting abusive. He's got to get evicted before the show starts. And all that has to happen before the, the kind of stadium lights go out, the red backlights of the stage come on, revealing the silhouette of the Joshua tree, and then those first guitar licks float across the cloud, uh, the crowd, and it sends a chill up your spine. I mean, that is theatre, even if it's not in an actual theatre. And I guess the thing about theatre is that it's it's uh, mostly about enjoying that very moment. I mean, you might reminisce over it in years to come, uh, like, I remember when there was a thunderstorm, he passively, aggressively bumped the guy in front, and that guy got evicted. What a night! But it really goes beyond that, that exciting, enjoyable memory. Well, the crucifixion of Jesus that we just read about from Luke's Gospel, that biography of Jesus' life, it's got all the hallmarks of great theatre, doesn't it? Again, um, not actually in an indoor theatre, but the stage is well and truly set. I mean, hostilities between the, the Jewish religious authorities and Jesus have been slowly escalating over months, even years. The Roman political authorities have been co-opted into the case against Jesus, executing judgment against him. There's crowds following along. Some are mocking him. Some are weeping for him. Soldiers, criminals. Did you notice the venue is even called the Skull? I mean, theatre. Even the basic elements of the world are involved with darkness coming over the whole land before a final heroic voice. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. It's just tremendous theatre. I mean, memorable more in its tragedy than its excitement, but it's theatre nonetheless. And it must be because people are still talking about it some 2,000 years later, aren't we? I mean, I don't think people will be gathering, gathering around and talking about Hamilton or a great Federer Nadal final or a U2 concert in 2,000 years. So what exactly is it about the death of Jesus that continues to spark discussion and conversation and remembrance. Well, I take it, it's because it's more than just theatre. It's more than drama for drama's sake. There is just something effectual about Jesus' death that remains captivating. In other words, his death was not only dramatic, it was effective. It has ongoing effects. 
And, and truthfully, friends, I think there's probably hundreds of effects of Jesus' death. But the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' official spokesmen, summarized just three important effects in a New Testament book called Colossians, which we'll read now. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now that sounds like a very full paragraph, doesn't it? But it just tells us, quite simply, about three effects of Jesus' death. Three effects of his dramatic death that continue to impact us even till today. Firstly, when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive with Christ. Secondly, he forgave our sins, which were like a written charge against us. And then thirdly, he triumphed over dark powers and authorities. The first is relational. God has made us spiritually alive with Christ. The second is legal. God has cancelled our indebtedness when he forgave our sins. And the third is cosmic. He has triumphed over dark powers. So we're going to look at each of them quite briefly in turn before thinking about what it means for us today. So the first there is it's relational. When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. Having thought about it though, let's hit that one up last. And so secondly, because we're making such good progress... God forgave our sins, which are like a written legal charge against us. Now, I I do understand in our culture the idea of sin and sinners, a bit of a joke. Uh, It sounds a bit like a throwback to an earlier time, um, probably because we have a cartoon view of them. Uh, You know, it's like stealing cookies from the cookie jar. We, We know it's not exactly the right thing to do, but no harm is done really, especially if you get away with it. And of course, that is the real sin in Australian culture, isn't it? It's not the act itself, it's getting caught. And so those words, sin and sinners, are almost comedy, they're comical to us. I wonder if you know that um, different countries have different odd kind of comical laws. For example, in England, did you know this? The, The Queen owns every single one of the mute swans in England. Every single one of them. She is the only one who was allowed to kill one. Apparently back in the day, um, all the toffs used to like eating swans at their dinner parties. Um, But these days, they're a protected species uh, in Britain. So if you kill one, a £5,000 fine. I mean, that's real money, isn't it? And up to six months in jail. In Switzerland, they're big on animal cruelty. Um, I mean, avoiding it, actually. (laughs) Not like a really aggressive race of people, the Swiss. Um, And so you're not allowed to buy certain pets on their own. You know, you can't buy just one goldfish uh, or one budgie or one guinea pig. You've got to buy at least two because the Swiss reckon that only one is an inhumane isolation. So you get busted. Do you know that even in Western Australia, it remains illegal to carry more than 50 kilograms of potatoes? And no one seems to know why that is. (laughs) So we think that that word sins refers to odd but ultimately unserious offences. You know, swans, goldfish, potatoes. Except when we're talking about other people's sins, when they impact us, and then they become serious, don't they? We're, we're conscious of others', others mistakes and errors and shortcomings when they affect us. And I suppose that sometime in our 
more sober moments, we become conscious of our own mistakes and errors and shortcomings. We realize that we don't actually live up to the standards that we expect of others, nor do we live up to the standards we expect of ourselves. So if we're honest, it should come as no surprise to us that we don't live up to the standards that God expects of creatures made in his image, which is what we are. And it's not actually just in the way that we fail God and his standards. It's more in the way that we fight him and his claim to rule in our lives. In the deep attitudes of our heart, we really say to him, back off. Keep out. (laughs) You're not welcome here. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. It's it's not just a, a list of curious little things, but a deep attitude of either polite rejection or outright rebellion against him. And... Look, I suppose it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what we call it. And the verses that we just read, they they picture our sins as like a legal indebtedness to God. We may have hurt others, sure enough, but there is also like an offence against God. We are rightly, if I may say, on his wrong side. He has a legal claim against us. It's, It's a picture almost of an IOU that we will never be able to repay. And yet the verse says, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the legal charge or the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We have sinned. It incurs a legal charge in the eyes of God, but it's as if Jesus' death covers it, pays the penalty, atones for it. You might have noticed in that gospel reading that there was a written notice above Jesus, nailed to the cross, which read, This is the king of the Jews. Of course, you couldn't get away with saying that in Roman-occupied Israel. That was a treasonous thing to say. The other criminals would have had signs above their heads as well, above their crosses too, indicating their supposed crime, insurrectionist, murderer, whatever it was. But the verse there is saying that God's charge against us has been covered over. It's been paid for. It's been atoned for by Jesus' death. It's as though that IOU has been nailed to the cross underneath the trumped-up charge above Jesus' head. Our sins are forgiven. The charge has been paid. The condemnation has been cancelled. Fancy that. And in my notes, I've got fancy that with an exclamation mark, as if to say, wow. I wonder if it should have a question mark that says, would you fancy that? Because an innocent man died in our place, as it were. The legal debt is paid. All our sins are forgiven. And so that's the legal effect of Jesus' death. Cancelled debt, forgiven sin, removed condemnation. Do you know there's also a cosmic effect of Jesus' death on the cross, which is what our next verse, or the next verse, talks about. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. It's funny though, isn't it? You, um, you look at the details of the crucifixion account and you wouldn't automatically call it a triumph, would you? I mean, this soldiers beating him, the crowd jeering him, his female followers weeping over him. I mean, even the sun stops shining for three hours. Not obviously triumph material. Uh, I would suggest it's a, um, a dark triumph. I mean, quite literally in the sense that it's dark. I mean, darkness came over the whole land. You you saw that in the opening clip. But even more so, dark in a metaphorical sense, in that deep and dreadful sense, a dark triumph. There is an art movement 
called Abstract Expressionism for all the art lovers out there, and it has been labelled a dark triumph. Uh, this movement exploded into the art scene after World War II, uh, really born out of Greenwich Village in New York City, and it's characterised by messiness and an unconventional and energetic application of paint. And so Jackson Pollock is probably the best known of the abstract expressionists. Uh, this is his painting, which is known as Blue Poles, although he just gave it a number, 11. Uh, and it's hanging in the National Art Gallery in Canberra if you want to see it. Uh, Pollock was known as Jack the Dripper uh, because of his kind of dripping sort of splatter technique that fell upon a canvas that was laid out horizontally on the ground like that. Unconventional, dark, messy, energetic, triumphant. Sounds like a very apt description of the cross of Christ. And that verse that we're thinking about is really saying that on the, cry, on the cross, Jesus does not only triumph over human powers like his own executioners, lovingly praying for their forgiveness at the very height of his own humiliation, but he triumphs over cosmic, spiritual powers, you know, forces of evil which conspired with human agents to, to crucify an innocent man, the forces of sin which was spoken of, and the devil, who again is not a cartoon, and even death itself. And our verse says that Jesus made a public spectacle of them, which in that day and age conjured up uh, the picture of a victorious military campaign in which the victorious warrior or commander would parade his captured enemy through the streets of the triumphant city to further humiliate the enemy and magnify the celebration of victory. Dark, cosmic triumph which all sounds good except that Jesus is dead limp exhausted defeated he cried out in a loud voice and then he breathed his last I mean I get the darkness you say I just can't see the victory the triumph where is it where is the celebration of course there is a flicker of hope uh, a shaft of light in the darkness when Jesus says to the kinder of the two criminals next to him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, paradise. There's a hint that there is more to come. And indeed there is when on the third day God raises Jesus to life again in front of many, in front of many eyewitnesses who embraced him, who ate with him. So he was no mere apparition ghost or a figment of their imagination but really that's a story for another day isn't it maybe Sunday see you then but if we return to that first verse the dark cosmic triumph makes sense in a way that is far more personal than we might have imagined when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with Christ on Easter Sunday God raised Christ from the dead, a cosmic and historical reality. But writing to Christians some decades later, the Apostle Paul says that God has made us alive with him in a most relational sense. We were dead in our sins and in our sinful nature. That's what the uncircumcision of the flesh means. And the, the first readers would have been obvious to them. So we were physically alive and yet spiritually dead, meaning not in right relationship with God. We might have been interested in spiritual things, don't get me wrong, but we were his enemies because of our sins, as we've already talked about. Not capable of friendship with God 
In fact, we were far more like the crowds who insulted Jesus as he was crucified than we were like the women who wept for him. But having raised Jesus from physical death to life again, God has also raised us from spiritual death to be alive with Christ, to be with him, in open friendship with him, in right standing with God, so that Jesus' death not only has the legal effect of cancelling the unpayable debt we owe to God when he forgave our sins, it not only has that cosmic effect of defeating dark spiritual powers of sin, death and the devil, no power of hell, it also has this relational effect that we might be raised to spiritual life to be with Jesus. Legal, cosmic, relational. Three effects, just three, of this dramatic day, which I think explains why some 2,000 years later, we're still gathering around to discuss and remember this extraordinary piece of theatre. One last thing. You and I are not mere spectators, are we? We're invited into this story. Uh, and in fact, you don't want to be left out of the story for the consequences are both awful and eternal. But because the effects of Jesus' death are relational as well as cosmic, it requires a personal response. And we are all invited into this story that brings forgiveness, debt cancellation, new spiritual life and triumph that requires a personal response and the clues for that come from some very unexpected places in the story. At the end of the gospel reading we had, it says this, when all the people who had gathered to witness this site saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. The crowd saw a spectacle. It impacted them emotionally. They beat their breasts, but ultimately they went away. How can they do that? It's not Hamilton. You see a good show, you clap your hands, you go home on the beeline. And yet in the verse before, a Roman centurion, a battle-hardened soldier, an expert executioner, had seen many people die, looked at Jesus and said, surely this was a righteous man. And he praised God. Meaning not only that he was innocent of the alleged crimes, but that there was just something special about him quite remarkable the other gospels reveal that he meant it in the sense that jesus was no mere human but he was godly he was godlike someone to follow up on perhaps even someone worth following and yet i think even more remarkable was the fellow who hung on the cross next to jesus most likely he was an insurrectionist a domestic terrorist a political revolutionary but there must have been something in the way Jesus died because this criminal changed his tune. We are punished justly, said to the criminal on the other side, for we are getting what our sins deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, you talk about darkly triumphant. The domestic terrorist the political revolutionary not only acknowledges his own wrongdoing, something that we find difficult to do, but likewise he sees Jesus as innocent and more notably he sees him as king over an otherworldly kingdom. Remember me, he says, when you come into your kingdom. Wow, 
deathbed confession, isn't it? And Jesus replies, today you will be with me in paradise. And so through the turning back of a battle-hardened Roman soldier and a repentant revolutionary, we too are invited into this story. Whatever your background, whatever you have done. Whatever your background and whatever you have done. Turn to Jesus and claim the effects of his death on the cross for yourself. The cosmic defeat of the forces of evil. The legal cancellation of an unpayable debt because God has forgiven your sins. And new spiritual life in open relationship with Jesus and in right standing with God. Do you know, surely it is the case that there is not a better time to do that than at Easter time. And you know, to do that you might need to find out more. So find out more. Come along on Sunday, next Sunday, the Sunday after that. Always open on Sundays. Uh, in a moment, you'll hear about a, a course we're running called the Alpha Course, a very famous course that'll help you find out more. Uh, you might like to take uh, this little book here. You've got copies on the back. It's Luke's Gospel that we read from, just in a, a neat little book form. Take it free of charge. I'd love you to have that. Find out more. Um, but, you know, I wonder, I mean, I'd be very surprised in a group this large if there wasn't somebody here who realized, actually, you know enough to make a decision to to know that today's a day of action. I mean, it's called Good Friday. I think that means it's a good day to take that sort of action. You don't know it all, but man, you know enough to know that he's the one to accept as your forgiver, your debt payer, your cosmic king over an otherworldly, eternal and paradise-like kingdom, and even as a friend. You, you know enough, I'm saying, to commit your life to following him, even at personal cost. And I think today is a really good day to do that. Uh, Suzanne and I will be up the front. We'd love to chat with you um, or pray with you to help you start doing just that if that's something you would like to do. Well, as we finish, death of Jesus is dramatic, isn't it? Darkly triumphant, extraordinary theatre, but not without effect. Legal, cosmic, relational, and moreover with a personal invitation to you as we are all invited into this story, into his story, into his kingdom. It's, it's more than memorable, changes everything. And so don't just witness the sight and go away. Accept the invitation and enter in.